Your New Year's Eve mission has been assigned. Safe House invites you to attend Chicago's number one New Year's Eve festivity, the Bond Ball. Ring in the New Year James Bond style with hundreds of your closest friends. Enjoy dancing, drink, and late night debauchery in the unique ambiance Safe House has to offer. Tickets include live DJ, dance party, late night food buffet, two champagne toasts, and a hosted bar until 1.30 a.m. Purchase your tickets at safehousechicago.com before they sell out. Linen cloth. A rectangular piece of linen cloth. An image of a body. A body showing wounds. Wounds consistent with a crucifixion. The crucifixion. The Son of God. The Christ, an image, a debate, belief, skepticism, religion, science, history, history, constant research, limited testing, a theory, another theory, so many theories, you're wrong, you're wrong, belief, faith, faith, skepticism, a raging debate, a set of evidence, a refutation of evidence, a set of experiments, a rejection of methods, a matter of opinion, a matter of reason, a matter of faith, a matter researcher from each biased article released, a maddening crowd waiting for the truth, a war of centuries-old attrition, the faith in science against the science of faith, a thundering tempest swirling in the realm of religious relics, and at the center of it all, an image of a body, a rectangular piece of linen cloth. Linen cloth. We're unraveling the mystery of the Shroud of Turin in this episode of Blurry Photos. Hello, welcome to Blurry Photos. I'm your host, David Flora. I've got a good show for you. So good, in fact, I decided to once again make it a two-parter and the second part will be hot on the heels of this one that was one of two things i had not planned for this topic the other being releasing it around christmas i've been looking at doing this one since before photober and once i got into the researching the wealth of material pushed it back and back and now it's christmas and it seems like i'm trying to make a statement i'm not there's, there's just a lot of icing on this cake, and I got a sweet tooth while researching. So, sorry for baking it so long and the coincidental timing. I promise neither was intended. But let's go ahead and cut this cake of a topic, one that always winds up being controversial for one reason or another. The Shroud of Turin. I'm not sure how well-known this holy object is, like if I were to ask 10 people if they've heard of it, I'd, I don't know how many would say yes. I would guess more than half would, and of that half, I'm not sure how many could say what it actually is. I mean, I was in that group, having heard of it and having a general idea, but not really knowing the specifics, and that's why I wanted to do an episode on it and learn more. Official study of it is called syndonology, from syndon, the Greek word used in the Gospel of Mark. It's probably the most revered Christian relic or holy object out there, ahead of some supposed pieces of Jesus' crown of thorns and his foreskin, and many sources are, at best, unsure of its authenticity, and at worst, 
pushing an agenda. Simply put, the shroud is a piece of linen cloth believed by many to be the actual burial shroud Jesus was wrapped and entombed in after his crucifixion. It bears an image of a man with wounds consistent with those suffered by the Christ during his torture and death, according to the Gospels. The controversy boils down to the black and white, yes, it's authentic, and no, it's not. And the debate is where all the gray lies. The testing, the historical accounts, the faith, the snark, the questions and the answers. It's also known as one of the most studied religious relics in the world, and the theories for and against its authenticity have gotten pretty out there. It has definitely been interesting to research, but I will say it's hard to find objective points of view on the subject. There's no shortage of biased material, both advocating its authenticity and disputing it, and it's not easy to sift through for facts. In this episode, my goal will be to present you with a description of the Shroud, its history, and the arguments and theories that make it so controversial. I'm going to try and synthesize the information as objectively as possible, presenting you with just information so your opinion might be better formed and untainted. And maybe at the end I'll give you my thoughts and opinions as an amateur researcher and podcast host, and you can see if you agree with my perspective. I'll remind everyone it's all in good fun and for the purposes of education, not proselytizing religion or anti-religion. We've got something here that sticks its feet in many a bucket in our world, from supernatural explanation and religious discussion to historical mystery and pseudoscience. Let's see if we can step back from all the arguing, think critically about what we're dealing with, and see what comes out in the wash. Made of woven linen cloth, the Shroud of Turin is a 4.4 meter by 1.1 meter, or 14.5 feet by 3 feet 7 inches, sheet that appears to show the front and rear images of a naked man. To give you a better mental picture, imagine lying a long rectangle of cloth down, then placing a body on it. The body only takes up about half the length, so you could fold the cloth over the body's head, which then goes down to the toes to cover. When laid out, there's a worn brown image of a man's front and a worn brown image of a man's backside, along with some staining and burn marks, which I'll come back to shortly. The cloth currently resides in the Royal Chapel of the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin, Italy, hence the name and is venerated by many people as a holy relic of Christianity. This is because the images on the cloth are believed to be that of Jesus Christ, meaning the cloth would be the actual burial shroud Jesus was laid to rest in after his crucifixion, according to the Bible's New Testament. The images show a man with an athletic build, 
between 1.7 and 1.9 meters tall, or 5 foot 7 inches to 6 foot 2 inches. He shows shoulder-length hair parted in the middle. His hands are crossed over his groin. There appear to be red stains of blood from wounds that coincide with those Jesus suffered as described in the Gospels. Holes in the feet and wrists, marks on the back, punctures or lacerations on the head, and a stab wound in the side. The cloth itself is a flax fiber, three-to-one herringbone twill weave. There are large fold marks and burns from an unfortunate incident in its long history. This has led to a number of repair patches being added as well. That long history is not an exaggeration. This thing came on record well over 600 years ago. Of course, the exact first mention is contested, like many things of this nature are, but the one with unequivocal proof comes from 1389, when a Bishop Pierre d'Arcis in Loray, France, wrote a letter to Pope Clement VII mentioning the Shroud. The Shroud was in the possession of the family of Geoffrey de Charnay, a French knight, but in 1453, almost a century after his death at the Battle of Poitiers, a Margaret de Charnay transferred ownership of it to the House of Savoy, a French royal family in southeastern France. The shroud was kept in a chapel in Chambery, where in 1532 a fire broke out. It apparently suffered a few burns when molten silver from the box it was kept in dripped on it. Nuns were able to save it, though it was left with scorch marks along the folds. These were repaired by the nuns with small patches. Emmanuel Philibert, the Duke of Savoy, had it taken to Turin in 1578, where, as mentioned earlier, it's been kept in the royal chapel of the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. The repairs that were made after the fire in 1532 were not the only ones to be done over the years. More were made in 1694 and 1868, plus cleaning that was done after the shroud was given to the Catholic Church, specifically the Holy See, in 1983. I read often that the Catholic Church has never officially declared the shroud to be an authentic relic, though they've never stopped anyone from revering it. In fact, popes have been careful not to fully authenticate it, but have venerated it nonetheless. Benedict XVI called it an extraordinary icon. Pope Francis called it an icon of Jesus' love. Pius XI kept it super mysterious, saying it was, quote, certainly not the work of any human hand. But Pope John Paul II, though a fan of the Shroud, said the mystery forces questions about faith and sciences and whether it really was Jesus' burial linen and urged continuous study. Interestingly, the shroud survived another fire in 1997, though I don't think it was molten silver dripping on it level of fire. The shroud was first photographed in 1898 by Secundo Pia, an Italian photographer who practically blew the lid off the secrets of it with his photo. While viewing the negative of his photograph, the images on the shroud popped like a magic eye picture moving away from your nose. 
more detail than was visible to the naked eye appeared on the photo's negative, and for the first time, people were able to see amazing features contained therein. It's more than likely the thing that kicked off serious study of the Shroud and led to the experiments at the center of the firestorm of a debate. An examination of the photograph was made by a professor of comparative anatomy in 1902. Yves Delage studied the photos and made a number of claims, in his expert opinion. He said the man in the image was anatomically flawless and showed signs of rigor mortis. He also claimed what showed on the sheet in terms of wounds and blood flows was indicative of direct or indirect contact with a corpse. Gee. Direct or indirect? What, did they run out of the word anything? A body could have touched this sheet. But, and here is the kicker, a body could not have touched this sheet. Genius. A handful of other people over the years made similar claims or supported Delage's assessment, though none of them, Delage included, ever studied the shroud directly. It was all through photographic interpretation. The shroud was kept under tight control up until 1969 when a team of 11 scientists and advisors were allowed to access it to decide how to go about testing the age, components, and basic authenticity of it. This led directly to the formation of the Shroud of Turin Research Project, or STIRP a group of scientists whose goal was to test and analyze the shroud to provide a scientific viewpoint on it. The team was headed by nuclear physicist Tom Demuala and included physicist John P. Jackson, thermodynamicist Eric Jumper, chemist Raymond Rogers, and many other experts from places like Los Alamos National Lab, Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Lab, the Brooks Institute of Photography, and other well-known research centers. In 1978, the STIRP team was allowed five straight days of unfettered access. Among their tests, they gathered several samples of material from several places on the shroud via sticky tape and analyzed them. After studying and evaluating the data, STIRP issued its final report in 1981, and I'll read you the official summary. No pigments, paints, dyes, or stains were found on the fibrils. X-ray, fluorescence, and microchemistry on the fibrils preclude the possibility of paint being used as a method for creating the image. Ultraviolet and infrared evaluation confirm these studies. Computer image enhancement and analysis by a device known as a VP8 image analyzer show that the image has unique, three-dimensional information encoded in it. Microchemical evaluation has indicated no evidence of any spices, oils, or any biochemicals known to be produced by the body in life or in death. It is clear that there has been a direct contact of the shroud with a body, which explains certain features such as scourge marks, as well as the blood. However, while this type of contact might explain some features of the torso, it is totally incapable of explaining the image of the face with the high resolution that has been amply demonstrated by photography. The basic problem from a scientific point of view is that some explanations which might be tenable from a chemical point of view 
are precluded by physics. Contrarywise, certain physical explanations which may be attractive are completely precluded by the chemistry. For an adequate explanation for the image of the shroud, one must have an explanation which is scientifically sound from a physical, chemical, biological, and medical viewpoint. At the present, this type of solution does not appear to be obtainable by the best efforts of the members of the shroud team. Furthermore, experiments in physics and chemistry with old linen have failed to reproduce adequately the phenomenon presented by the Shroud of Turin. The scientific consensus is that the image was produced by something which resulted in oxidation, dehydration, and conjugation all across the nation of the polysaccharide structure of the microfibrils of the linen itself. Such changes can be duplicated in the laboratory by certain chemical and physical processes. A similar type of change in linen can be attained by sulfuric acid or heat. However, there are no chemical or physical methods known which can account for the totality of the image, nor can any combination of physical, chemical, biological, or medical circumstances explain the image adequately. Thus, the answer to the question of how the image was produced, or what produced the image, remains now, as it has in the past, a mystery. We can conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an artist. The blood stains are composed of hemoglobin and also give a positive test for serum albumin. The image is an ongoing mystery and until further chemical studies are made, perhaps by this group of scientists or perhaps by some scientists in the future, the problem remains unsolved. It was music to the ears of the faithful. Science had weighed in and declared the shroud, at best, a great fit to be the shroud of Jesus, and at worst, a mystery with mysterious origins mistering through history. After officially taking ownership of the shroud, the Vatican debated whether or not to conduct additional research and tests on it, including the more intensive method of radiocarbon dating which had the potential to rock the world if testing confirmed the shroud was from the first century CE. In 1988, samples of the shroud were sent to three independent labs, the University of Arizona, the University of Oxford, and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. Each lab concluded with 95% confidence that the flax, which made up the linen of the shroud, grew no later than 1390 and no earlier than 1260 CE. That wasn't exactly what the church or shroud proponents had in mind, especially coming off the conclusions of Sturp less than a decade earlier. In fact, it was the exact kind of information those who did not believe in the shroud's authenticity were waiting to rally behind. And a withered old cardinal looked out uneasily over St. Peter's Square, saying, the shroud of the light side has fallen. Begun, the cloth war has. This led to the filthiest of mudslinging between proponents of the shroud's authenticity and proponents of the shroud's inauthenticity, as believers pointed to several things wrong with the 1988 tests, and disbelievers pointed to several things wrong with the 1978 tests, and logic was lacking here, and faith was lacking there, and on and on and on. Which means it's probably about time to lay out some of the big points and theories foe and again the old shroud, including its age, tests, 
image formation, and other observations and research done over the years since STIRP and the radiocarbon dating. There are many angles of attack that have been taken against authenticity claims of the Shroud and against the claims of skeptics. When one side presents a theory or even a conspiracy, the other side has worked diligently to refute it. I'm going to lay out a list of some of these claims and try not to dwell too long on many of them so we don't spend all day on the he said, sheet said. Here are some points Shroud proponents have made over the years in support of the Shroud's authenticity. The sheet's measurements don't seem special, except when measured with the biblical unit of measurement, the cubit. It's claimed to be exactly four cubits long by two cubits wide, a much more precise and satisfying measurement than feet or meters. The material of the sheet, apparently conformed to Jewish laws, not mixing wool and flax linen. It also has the weave of a wealthy make, the kind a rich man like Joseph of Arimathea would purchase for Christ. The body would have to have been washed, as is Jewish practice, because the blood stains would come from clotted wounds opening again, which is seen on the nail holes in the wrists and feet, scourge marks on the back, and thorn marks on the head in the image. The seepage from these wounds would not be touchable because it would be considered unclean blood, according to the law. Wounds on the body match gospel descriptions exactly. The last of the injuries is an apparent wound to the side. Here, in addition to a large outflow of blood from the heart, there is also evidence of another thin, watery type substance, which is best seen on the dorsal image where blood has flowed across the lower part of the back and is separated from the heavier blood components. The markings on this image are so clear and so medically accurate that the pathological facts which they reflect concerning the suffering and death of the man depicted here are, in my opinion, beyond dispute. During the last few years, an increasing number of scholars have developed a desire to find out more about the Shroud. But Dr. John Robinson, Dean of Trinity College, Cambridge, was perhaps the last one would expect to take a deep interest. His books, particularly Honest to God, have earned him a reputation of being very much a skeptic. Well, my interest in the Shroud is primarily as a New Testament scholar. And I must confess that when I first investigated it, I was as skeptical of this relic as of any other, all of which, as far as I know, have been shown to be bogus. But the more one went into it, the more one realized there was so much about this thing that a forger would never really have thought of, and indeed that he would come up, I think, with a very different cloth from the one we now have because he would have started from the evidence of the New Testament as interpreted by a Christian tradition, and he would probably have envisaged the body of Jesus as having been wound round in a winding cloth, rather like an Egyptian mummy, with possibly a face cloth over the front, on which he would then have forged an image rather like the bogus and Veronica's handkerchief. In fact, what we have 
uh, fits extraordinarily well with the New Testament evidence and from my point of view helps to make a great deal more sense of it than I saw before. There are numerous reports of Jesus' burial shroud being venerated in various locations prior to the 14th century. In fact, in the late 12th century, there is a collection of manuscripts called the Prey Codex that purportedly shows the shroud in an illustration. And there once existed a cloth called the Image of Edessa, or the Holy Mandilion, which supposedly showed a miraculous image of the face of Jesus lost now, but thought by some to be the same thing as the shroud. Not mentioning the shroud by name doesn't mean it didn't exist prior to the 14th century, especially since it was not called the Shroud of Turin until it got to Turin in 1578. In addition, there's the oft-overlooked Sudarium of Oviedo, which is purported to be the cloth which covered the face of Jesus after his death. Jewish custom and indeed the Gospels confirm that a second cloth was used specifically for wrapping the head of Jesus. John chapter 20 verses 6 and 7 says, Simon Peter, following him, also came up, went into the tomb, and saw the linen cloth lying on the ground, and also the cloth that had been over his head. This was not with the linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. The Sudarium has a much more documented history and was apparently in Palestine until just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 614 CE, and was secreted around from Alexandria to Sevilla to Toledo and finally to a cave outside of Oviedo, Spain. Stains supposedly show the face of a man, and the cloth is said to contain blood and pleural fluid, the liquid which collects in the lungs like the kind when someone is crucified. Sterp found no artificial pigment, Therefore, this could not be simply a painting of a man. Perhaps the biggest argument against the carbon dating tests, which pointed to a medieval origin, is that those tests were flawed and or contaminated. A true origin of the date was not found because samples were compromised for a number of reasons. The fire in 1532 skewed the dates, with the carbon amount shifting the true date 1300 years with the medieval material from the 16th century fire being the actual test sample. Another reason, bacteria has built up over the years and skewed the date. Or, the most obvious, they tested the repairs added by the nuns, not the original shroud itself. Invisible reweaving was done as upkeep for the shroud, and that's what was tested. Blood has been identified on sticky tape, which was used to lift fibrils from the shroud for testing. This blood, identified through high levels of iron, some proteins, and iron oxide, was discovered by biophysicist John Heller and chemist Alan Adler during Sterp's examination. Pierre Luigi Bologna, a forensic pathologist, took their work a step further and determined the blood type was AB. An independent report in 1978 by botanist Avinoam Danon and palynologist Uri Baruch and a palynologist studies dust, including pollen, spores, and such, concluded that pollen grains on Sterp's tested examples came from plants which flowered around Jerusalem in the spring. Forensic microscopist Max Fry supposedly looked at the shroud samples in 1973 and 1978 
and found pollen from many species of plants, which were mostly from the Near East, especially the area around Jerusalem. It is amazing that every flowering plant produces pollen of its own, which can be distinguished from any other pollen. I often employed the study of the microscopical dust in the garments of a suspect, on weapons, tools, or any other piece of evidence in order to find out where these objects had come from, as pollen grains have a very resistant outer wall, the so-called exine, so that they remain unchanged for thousands of years. Dr. Fry was given an opportunity to study the shroud at first hand when, in 1973, he was asked to authenticate photographs of the cloth taken a few years earlier. I remarked between the threads some dust particles, some of them looking like pollen grains or spores. At higher magnification, I was certain of it, and so I asked the competent authorities if it would be possible to take dust samples. I hoped by this examination to find out some details about the history of the shroud. Let me show you what I found. This here, for example, is the, from the beech, Fagus sylvatica, a plant growing in Central Europe and the northern parts of Europe. And here I have a pollen of Taxus baccata, the yew tree, a plant that is growing too in northern Europe and central Europe. Altogether, Max Fry identified 12 pollens of European origin. They only confirm what we already know, that the shroud was exposed to the open air in France and Italy. But then I came across this one, Linum Mucronatum, and this one, Romeria Hybrida, Glaucium Grandiflorum, Onosma Giganteum, Astragalus. Pollens and fibers from nine species of plants growing exclusively in this area were found on the shroud, indicating that Lire in France was not where it originated. The presence of such a significant number of pollens from plants growing in Turkey leads me to one fundamental conclusion. At some time of its history, the shroud must have been exposed to the air in southern Turkey or the surroundings of Istanbul. Uri <laughs> Baruch's work only bolstered this as he found high concentrations of certain pollens that are not spread by wind, leading him to believe that these Near East flowers had been placed on the shroud. This also played nicely with Dannon and a few others' theory that the image of flowers can be seen in the shroud negative. Additionally, Dannon said the Sudarium of Oviedo contained the same pollen grains and AB blood type found on the shroud. We don't know what caused the image of the shroud in the first place, therefore we don't have the ability to test such a thing. 
The age is one thing, but how was this image formed on the cloth? No pigment is there, no brush strokes, blood is there, and the image has 3D qualities and photographs. All scientific attempts to replicate the image have failed. Some techniques have gotten close, but it's impossible to replicate, even with our 21st century knowledge. This proves its miraculous nature. Some of the better theories for how it could maybe have been made are a burst of ultraviolet radiation, or perhaps some high-energy flash of light or energy, even plasma in the air, though it's been said the amount of energy needed for these is not producible on Earth. It's also been thrown out there that nuclear emissions from an earthquake in Jerusalem caused the image to burn onto the sheet. Either way, proponents say the shroud is the burial cloth of Jesus of Nazareth, that the 1988 tests were flawed and useless, and that skeptics only attack its authenticity because the truth doesn't fit their narrative or worldview. Lots of stuff to think about. When I return in part two, I'll discuss the claims from the skeptical side of the coin as well as some questions I jotted down and thoughts I had after going through the research. For part one of the Shroud of Turin, I have been the negative image of David Flora. Till next time.